You all may be seated. Kids can now be dismissed out the back to go to kids' church. (laughs) He said he can finally be with his friends again. (laughs) During the torture of the first few minutes of church, when you are separated from your friends... Go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Psalm 119, Psalm 119. Um, Like Allison uh, was talking about when she was up here, sometimes you need uh, a moment, you need to just take a second. Um, And so I want to give us a moment just of a very rare sensation called silence, other than the hum of whatever that is. In this moment of silence, I encourage you to try and quiet your mind. Uh, Empty your mind of distractions and the things that you brought in here. um, And allow yourselves to take a moment to just focus. God, thank you for this opportunity to come before you. I pray that as we study your word, you would captivate us with your beauty. Let all other things fade away. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, So this past weekend, uh, we were in uh, Ohio. We went to Cedar Point and to a water park. And um, the reason why I sound the way that I do is because I went on the most intense water slide I've ever been on in my entire life. And uh, I came shooting down into a pool of water at about 900 miles per hour. And so water shot up my nose into the back of my brain and uh, filled my entire soul with water. So I apologize that I sound like this. Uh, Bear with me. Uh, So two weeks ago, we started this mini-series called Sinners in the Hands of a Beautiful God. Uh, We talked about that most famous sermon in the history of America uh, by Jonathan Edwards, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And we talked about how the perspective of that sermon was not quite right, uh, in my opinion. That although it absolutely is true that God is angry at sin... It's absolutely true that judgment follows sin. It's absolutely true that we're deserving of that. But uh, that view can bring us to a point where we look at God as an angry tyrant and ourselves as ants under his microscope. Um, And we talked about the fact that God primarily is a God of love, that his steadfast faithfulness is his most defining trait. What? Is it? Is it really loud? All right, give me one second. Let me see if I can. Better? Yep. Okay. Now you can focus. I'm back. Um... We talked about how God is steadfast and faithful, how he draws himself near 
to sinners, how he intimately loves every single one of us, and that he doesn't just judge sin from a distance, he demonstrates his faithfulness to us up close. Then last week we began to talk about the Bible itself, because when we read through Psalm 119, what we find is a perspective on the Bible that most of us probably don't identify with. We, we talked about the fact that the psalmist looks at the Bible, and his Bible was the first five books of the Old Testament. We talked about that he views this as, uh, as if it's better than all of the money in the world, better than any food you could ever eat. It gives him beauty and satisfaction and a fulfillment. Th- this might be a strange response uh, we might find to the Old Testament law, but he absolutely loves it because it is life-giving. It is, it is for our good, and most of all because it reflects the beauty of the Creator. Uh, So we've established now that we have a beautiful God and that he saves us from the penalty of sin. But this week, uh, we'll take uh, some more sections out of Psalm 119 to show us that it is the beauty of God that sets us free also from the power of sin. Now, here's the thing about beauty, and, and this makes it a little bit unique among all of the various attributes of God. Beauty is not useful. When we seek the power of God, that is very useful indeed. The the power of God can be used in a multitude of different ways that are beneficial on our behalf. When we seek the love of God, that too is also something that benefits us greatly. When we seek the wisdom of God... Uh, wisdom is a tool that brings us knowledge, it brings us understanding, it, it can help us make decisions. So the power of God, the love of God, the wisdom of God, and many of his other attributes are very, very useful to us, like tools that we can hold and use for various purposes. But the beauty of God is not like that. The beauty of God, beauty itself, does not do anything. Beauty simply exists. But the fact that beauty is not useful doesn't mean that beauty is useless. It doesn't mean that it serves no purpose. You see, beauty is incredibly important because of the way that it affects us. Beauty draws us upward to worship. Beauty is not characterized by its usefulness or its accomplishing of a task. It's characterized by its captivation. It captivates us. It causes us to look beyond ourselves. And that is why it is so important. Because of the way that it draws our souls upward. And when our gaze turns upward, our attention turns upward away from the things of this world, what happens is our perspective on those things begins to change. There's an old song that says, Turn my eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Beauty leads us to worship. And worship is like a rejuvenating internal mechanism that recenters our entire being. Worship refocuses us. So we need the beauty of God. But isn't it so strange 
to speak about the beauty of God. The thing about beauty is we closely identify beauty with vision. Beauty is something that we think about seeing something. So how do we possibly describe something as beautiful that we've never seen before? Interestingly, the dictionary does not define beauty as being visual. It defines it as a characteristic of something that provides a perceptual experience of pleasure or satisfaction. So, beauty can be perceived without use of any one of the senses. As long as the mind can conceive or perceive the quality of something, that makes it beautiful, as long as it can be experienced. So, who better to describe beauty in that way to us than someone whose senses were limited to touch and smell? Who better to describe the acute mental perception of beauty than someone who could not hear, see, or speak? That person would be Helen Keller. So, Helen Keller was born a healthy baby girl in 1880. But at the age of 19 months, she contracted an unknown disease which ravaged her body, leaving her deaf and blind before she was able to learn how to even speak. So she lived, as she wrote in her autobiography, at sea in a dense fog. Imagine living your entire life blind, deaf, and unable to speak. Really shut off from the outside world. But that didn't stop her from being an incredibly influential and important political activist, um, author, and teacher. So in her book in 1908, her autobiography, The World I Live In, Keller spent a chapter describing what beauty meant to her. The chapter was called Inward Visions. So I want us to take a moment to listen to Keller's words on beauty. Uh, let's start with everyone closing their eyes and trying to imagine this. Okay, so close your eyes and try to picture the things that Helen Keller said. She says, according to all art, all nature, all coherent human thought, we know that order, proportion, and form are the essential elements of beauty. Now, order, proportion, and form are palpable to the touch, but beauty and rhythm are deeper than sense. They are like love and faith. They spring out of a spiritual process only slightly dependent upon sensations. Order, proportion, and form cannot generate in the mind the abstract idea of beauty unless there is already a soul intelligence to breathe life into the elements. Many persons having perfect eyes are blind in their perceptions. Many persons having perfect ears are emotionally deaf. Yet these are the very ones who dare to set limits to the vision of those who, lacking a sense or two, have will, soul, passion, imagination. Faith is a mockery if it teaches us not that we may construct a world unspeakably more complete and beautiful than the material world. And I too may construct my better world, for I am a child of God an inheritor of a fragment of the mind that created all worlds. There is a consonance of all things, a blending of all that we know about the material world and the spiritual. 
It consists for me of all the impressions, vibrations, heat, cold, taste, smell, and the sensations which these convey to the mind, infinitely combined, interwoven with associated ideas and acquired knowledge. No thoughtful person will believe that what I said about the meaning of footsteps is strictly true of mere jolts and jars. It is an array of the spiritual in certain natural elements, tactual beats, and an acquired knowledge of physical habits and moral traits of highly organized human beings. What would odors signify if they were not associated with the time of year, the place I live in, and the people I know? The result of such a blending is sometimes a discordant trying of strings, far removed from a melody, far removed from a symphony. For the benefit of those who must be reassured, I will say that I have felt a musician tuning his violin, that I have read about a symphony, and so have a fair intellectual perception of my metaphor. But with training and experience, the faculties gather up the stray notes and combine them into a full, harmonious whole. If the person who accomplishes this task is particularly gifted, we call him a poet. The blind and deaf are not great poets, it's true. Yet now and again you will find one deaf and blind who has attained to his royal kingdom of beauty. Am I to be denied the use of such adjectives as freshness and sparkle, dark and gloomy? I have walked in the fields at early morning. I have felt a rose bush laden with dew and fragrance. I have felt the curves and graces of my kitten at play. I have known the sweet, shy ways of little children. I have known the sad opposites of all these, a ghastly touch picture. Remember... I have sometimes traveled over a dusty road as far as my feet could go. At a sudden turn, I have stepped upon starved, ignoble weeds, and reaching out my hands, I have touched a fair tree out of which a parasite had taken the life like a vampire. I have touched a pretty bird whose soft wings hung limp, whose little heart beat no more. I have wept over the feebleness and deformity of a child, lame or born blind or worse still, mindless. If I had the genius of Thompson, I too could depict a city of dreadful night from mere touch sensations. From contrasts so irreconcilable can we fail to form an idea of beauty and know surely when we meet with loveliness. It was a rare poet who thought of the mountain as the first dim outline of God's plan. That is the real wonder of the poem, and not that a blind man should speak so confidently of sky and sea. Our ideas of the sky are an accumulation of touch glimpses, literary illusions, and the observations of others, with an emotional blending of all. My face feels only a tiny portion of the atmosphere, but I go through continuous space and feel the air at every point, every instant. I have been told about the distances from our earth to the sun, to other planets, and to the fixed stars. I multiply a thousand times the utmost height and width that my touch compasses, and thus I gain a deep sense of the sky's immensity. Move me along constantly over water, nothing but water, and you give me the solitude, the vastness of the ocean which fills the eye. I have been in a little sailboat on the sea when the rising tide swept it toward the shore. May I not understand the poet's figure, the green of spring overflows the earth like a tide? 
I have felt the flame of a candle blow and flutter in the breeze. May I not then say, myriads of fireflies flit hither and thither in the dew-wet grass like fluttering tapers? Combine the endless space of air, the sun's warmth, the clouds that are described to my understanding spirit, the frequent breaking through the soil of a brook or the expanse of the wind-ruffled lake, the tactual undulation of the hills, which I recall when I'm far away from them, the towering trees upon trees as I walk by them, the bearing that I try to keep while others tell me the directions of the various points of the scenery. And you will begin to feel surer of my mental landscape. The utmost bound to which my thought will go with clearness is the horizon of my mind. From this horizon, I imagine the one which the eye marks. Touch cannot bridge distance. It is fit only for the contact of surfaces. But thought leaps the chasm. For this reason, I am able to use words descriptive of objects distant from my senses. You may open your eyes and look now at Psalm 119. I want us to see in Psalm 119 how thought leaps the chasm. How beauty and rhythm are deeper than sense how it grows out of a spiritual process only slightly dependent upon the senses. And I want us to see that beauty will free us as it captivates us. The first place we'll go is Psalm 119, verses 129 through 136. The words will be behind me on the screen as well as I read. The psalmist writes, Your testimonies are wonderful. Therefore, my soul keeps them. The unfolding of your words gives light. It imparts understanding to the simple. I open my mouth and pant because I long for your commandments. Turn to me and be gracious to me, as is your way with those who love your name. Keep steady my steps according to your promise and let no iniquity get dominion over me. Redeem me from man's oppression that I may keep your precepts. Make your face shine upon your servant and teach me your statutes. My eyes shed streams of tears because people do not keep your law. So if you're taking notes, here's point number one. Point number one is this. True obedience flows from admiration, not obligation. True obedience flows from admiration, not from obligation. There are two types of people in this world. Uh, well, there's billions of types of people in the world, truly, but for the purpose of this analogy, there are two types of people. There are rule followers and there are rule breakers. Now, as I'm sure you've heard, opposites attract. And such is true in my marriage. I am a rule breaker by nature. My nickname growing up that my parents gave me was LP. LP stood for limit pusher. I was the one who enjoyed pushing limits. I am the type of person who approaches rules as if they are challenges. 
To me, a rule is like a dare. When a sign says, do not step on the grass, I read it as saying, I dare you to step on the grass. After all, we've all heard the phrase, rules are made to be broken, right? Well, sometimes I break a rule simply to just be contrary. Sometimes it's not so much that I want the result of the broken rule. Sometimes I just get pleasure out of breaking the rule itself. And perhaps that qualifies me as an awful person. But I'm sure that there are other people, either here or listening online, who can identify with that. My wife, on the other hand is not that way at all. She approaches rules as if they are rules. She approaches rules as if they are not made to be broken. They are to be followed and followed strictly to the letter, the same way every single time. So, uh, like I said, we were in Ohio yesterday. We went to Cedar Point. We rode rides, we went on roller coasters, we did various activities. It was an awesome, awesome day. Had a lot of fun. Well, there was a couple of occasions where one of us would be standing in line with the kids and the other would have to leave line for whatever reason. Typically it was our kids were either thirsty or had to go to the bathroom, something. Well, there was one uh, part of the day when we were in Kitty Kingdom and the kids were in line for, I think, a -a tilt-a-whirl. And it was just the two of them in line. We were just a, a few feet away from them watching uh, as they were in line. Well, as we're standing there, my wife begins to read the sign that's right next to the ride. And the sign says, according to the rules, that if a child is less than 48 inches, they must be accompanied by an adult or guardian. And so she says, I need to accompany my daughter. She is less than 48 inches. So I'm like, all right, go do your thing. So Allison walks over and stands in the back of the line. Now, Eli and Marisol are at the front of the line. And please understand, when I say line, I'm talking like nine people, okay? This is not 200 people in a line. This is Kitty Kingdom, and there's like nine people in line in front of her. So I'm standing there with her parents, and we're all looking over like, why isn't she cutting in line to go to the kid? It's not even cutting, okay? That's not called cutting. That's just going to the spot in line that is already saved, right? So we're like, why doesn't she just say, excuse me, I I need to get to the kids? So I'm standing there watching her, and I'm imagining in my mind what is absolutely going on in her mind. I'm picturing the thoughts that she is having, this internal conflict, this war that is waging between two voices. The first voice is saying, I really need to go around the people to get to the kids. But the second voice furiously scolds the first voice and says, how dare you even think about cutting in line? That is against the rules. And so this battle wages, and I can see the steam sort of rising from her ears. And as this conflict wages, finally, after like five minutes, she goes around, says, excuse me, I need to get to the kids. And I realize, I know what just happened. 
as the two voices are arguing back and forth. The first voice won by saying, you have to go to your kids because the rules state you have to. And the second voice says, well, I can't say no to the rules, so around you go. And my wife made her way to the front of the line. I simply would have just jumped the metal barrier within two and a half seconds and been there right away. But that's not how she is. As it turns out, Eli, our son, got the same rule-following gene. Which, for us as parents, is really great, let me say. Usually. Um, And after uh, we had Marisol, I realized that she took after me, which is not so awesome... And I have never been so annoyed with myself. Okay, It is God's way of saying, ha ha, back at you, kid. Here's a rule breaker that now you have to deal with. Well, uh, just about a month ago, we took a trip to Virginia Beach for our 10-year anniversary. And while we were there, we went to a ropes course. And that was a, a, a lot of fun. We had a great time. However, the thing is about that ropes course that... Children had to be at least five years old to participate. Okay, my daughter is going to be five in three days. So at the time that we took this trip, she was a few weeks out from being five years old. So do you know what my wife did? My rule-following wife. You know what she did? She lied. She bold face lied. Not only did she tell the attendants herself, my daughter is five, she told our daughter to tell the attendants, I'm five. Okay? And when they asked her, How old are you? she said, Four. And my wife goes, No, 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 you're five, remember? We had your birthday. She's silly, right? We went. We had a great time. My wife justified her heinous crime by saying, you know what? We're close enough, okay? We're just a few weeks away. We're close enough. It'll be okay. And we had a great time until we got into the car to drive home. And Eli found out that mommy lied. Eli found out that mommy had told them this incredible lie that Marisol is actually five, is actually four years old. And Eli goes, Mommy, you lied to them? And she's like, Eli, it's fine. We had a great time, didn't we? We wouldn't have been able to do that if I didn't lie. And he goes, what is their number? You need to call them right now. You need to call them and apologize that you lied. You didn't tell the truth, Mommy. Call them right now. Eli is a rule follower. My wife is a rule follower. Now, here's the thing. Do you know, my, do you know why my wife and my son follow the rules so religiously? They follow the rules so religiously because they have this deep-seated sense in them that tells them they are supposed to. Their consciences are geared toward following the rules. 
because they fear the consequences of breaking them. Their consciences remind them regularly that they are obligated to follow the rules. My conscience is broken. (laughs) It is faulty. My conscience is kind of like the uh, the Kitty Kingdom rides that we saw yesterday at Cedar Point. It has a lazy, unenthusiastic operator. It does not go very fast. And there's usually about an hour-long wait to even spend 25 seconds with it. It is not a highly functioning conscience. But Allison and I have something in common, which leads her to follow the rules and leads me to break them. That is a sense of obligation. Hers, of course, is very strong. Mine is very weak. But neither of those positions are ultimately where God wants us to be as we look at his word. Neither describe how the psalmist felt about God and scripture. The psalmist did not have a battle waging in him between supposed to and I know I'm supposed to, but what the psalmist describes is delight. He delighted in God's word. Thus, it was easy for him to follow. Look again at verse 129. He says, your testimonies are wonderful. Therefore, my soul keeps them. Your testimonies are wonderful. Therefore... My soul keeps them. Notice that he does not say, I keep your testimonies because I know I should. He does not say, I will feel really guilty if I don't follow them, so I'm going to. He also doesn't say, you know what, I'm going to keep your testimonies because I'm sick of getting punished when I don't. He is not rebelling against out of a sense of obligation or obeying out of a sense of obligation. He is saying, my soul keeps these things because they are wonderful. The word that is used in the original Hebrew for wonderful can also be translated as miraculous, marvelous, something that fills us with awe. The same word is used in the book of Exodus when God did the miracles in Egypt. We have heard it described that he did great signs and wonders. That is the word that's used here for wonder. It is something that fills us with awe. This is entirely different and distinct from a perspective that battles between should I or shouldn't I. When something is driven by awe and wonder and delight, we simply can't not follow. You see, when we have a strong conscience, where that falls short is that ultimately, a strong conscience is never going to be strong enough. There are going to be times when breaking the law seems better than following the law. My wife, as strong as her conscience is, found that lying about our four-year-old being five was more advantageous than keeping the law and having her sit out the ropes course. Personally, I'm really glad she did it. I wanted her to break that law. 
and we had a great time. I would think we already know what the problem is with a weak conscience, and that is that it only follows the law when it really benefits you to do so. But there's no falling short when it comes to delight. When you admire something so much, when you're, when you're captivated by something's beauty, there is nothing that can convince you not to be loyal to it. To use a very limited analogy, say you have a womanizer, a serial womanizer who gets married, uh, someone who is a rule breaker by nature, but they only get married because they're pressured into it, not because they actually, actually love their wife, because they'd much rather be out living free and doing their own thing, but let's say they get pushed into marriage. What are the chances of them being unfaithful in marriage? Pretty high, right? I would say pretty high. Or on the other side, what if you have a rule follower who gets married? Again, not out of love, not out of uh, being head over heels for someone, but out of a feeling that, hey, you know what, this is what I'm supposed to do. This is the next step. I'm going to decide to do this because I feel like this is right. Well, what would happen if that person built a relationship with a coworker, and that coworker was beautiful and wonderful and that person falls in love with a coworker? You think their strength of supposed to will carry them through? Maybe. Maybe not. The chances, again, are high. But what if someone gets married out of a deep abiding love for their spouse. Not an emotional high, not a, not a feelings love that will fade. I'm talking about real love. I'm talking about a delight in their spouse. Someone that they are head over heels with. They cannot imagine being with anyone else. Could that person be convinced to be unfaithful? Well, certainly that could happen. But not without first convincing them to no longer delight in their spouse. There is a step there that would have to be jumped over. That is the difference here. This is how beauty relates to obedience. If we are captivated by the beauty of God and his word, we can't not be faithful to it. Nothing will convince us of its betterness. Now certainly we make mistakes and no one is perfect, but we live in a pattern of faithfulness because we know that his testimonies are wonderful. And there could come a day when we no longer live that way, but not before we're convinced uh, that his word isn't wonderful. This is how he can say what he does in verse 133. He says, keep my steps steady according to your promise. And let no iniquity get dominion over me. Keep my steps steady according to your promise. Let no iniquity get dominion over me. When something has dominion over us, it is because we are captured by its perceived beauty. To have dominion over something means to have control over it. To have ownership of it. Allison and I have dominion over our home. We get to decide how it is run. But when it comes to the decisions of our lives, something only controls us, it only has dominion over us, if we see it as beautiful. Notice that that I did not say logical or makes the most sense, but rather beautiful. 
Greed can have dominion over us because a life of wealth seems more beautiful than the perceived poverty that comes from faithfulness. Lust can have dominion over us when the bodies we see with our eyes are more beautiful than the unseen truth of the promises of God. Pride can have dominion over us when we're captured by our own beauty more than anything else that is outside of us. That dominion is broken when we are captured by real beauty, the beauty of God and His Word. And and I get that that does not come naturally to us all the time. So it's vital that we remember a verse that we looked at last week in verse 18 when the psalmist says, Open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things in your law. There's that word again. Wondrous things in your law. We keep his testimonies because they are wonderful. And we have to ask him to show us that. Open my eyes. Give me the right perspective that I can see the wonder of your promises. And when he does, when he shows us that, that is when he can keep our steps steady according to his promise. The beauty, of his, uh, the, the beauty of his promise keeps our eyes transfixed. It keeps our feet walking toward him. At the very beginning of my relationship with Allison, I was driving back home to where we lived in Virginia. Actually from here, I was, I was in South Bend for a Notre Dame football game with my dad. And at the end of that weekend, I was driving back to Virginia to ask Allison to be my girlfriend, okay? Oh, it was cute. So as I'm driving, uh, the speed limit was not going to stop me from going really fast. I had to get home to this girl that I was completely head over heels in love with. Her beauty captured me, and there was nothing on earth that could make me detour or slow down. So I'm driving down the highway and I'm listening to this song, okay, that I'm not recommending to everyone. Let me just throw that disclaimer out there. I'm not advocating the song or the artist, all right, but hear me out. There was a line in this song in the chorus that Neo sings. He says, she's got me speeding in the fast lane, pedal to the flow, man, trying to get back to her love. It was the original alley jam. (laughs) She's got me speeding in the fast lane, pedal to the flow, trying to get back to her love. I was captivated by her beauty. So nothing was going to take me off of that path. I was a man on a mission. That is how true obedience comes from admiration, not obligation. But again, The difficulty with with beauty, this beauty, is that it is unseen. Let's turn now to verses 33 through 40. Full disclosure, I forgot to put this in the PowerPoint, so you'll have to read along in your own Bible. Verses 33 through 40. The psalmist says, Teach me, O Lord, the way of your statutes, and I will keep it to the end. Give me understanding that I may keep your law and observe it with my whole heart. Lead me in the path of your commandments, for I delight in it. 
Incline my heart to your testimonies and not to selfish gain. Turn my eyes from looking at worthless things and give me life in your ways. Confirm to your servant your promise that you may be feared. Turn away the reproach that I dread for your rules are good. Behold, I long for your precepts. In your righteousness, give me life. Here is point number two. Unseen beauty beckons us to close our eyes to the world. Unseen beauty beckons us to close our eyes to the world. I want to go back to something that we talked about a little bit earlier. The biggest problem for us in this discussion of God is that he is not visibly in front of us. So when we talk about him being beautiful... Uh, Our minds can grasp the concept of that, but usually we talk about it in a future sense. Like, someday when I get to heaven, I will be able to see the beauty of God then. But that's not how the psalmist writes here. He writes in a present tense. He is captured right now with the beauty of God. And that beauty right now is not visual. But remember... As long as the mind can perceive the quality of something that makes it beautiful, it can be experienced. Allow me to reference Helen Keller once more when she said, Touch cannot bridge distance. It is fit only for the contact of surfaces, but thought leaps the chasm. For this reason, I am able to use words descriptive of objects distant from my senses. She says, Thought bridges the chasm. Touch cannot. Senses cannot. But thought leaps the chasm. Without the use of any of the five senses, something can still be perceived as beautiful. So as it turns out, the old adage is wrong. Beauty is not in the eye of the beholder. Beauty is in the mind of the beholder. This is why Paul can say in 1 Corinthians 5, 7, we walk by faith, not by what? Sight. We walk by faith, not by sight. So here in verse 37, the psalmist says, turn my eyes from looking at worthless things and give me life in your ways. Turn my eyes from looking at worthless things and give me life in your ways. So he first uses a physical term when he describes his sight. He says, turn my eyes away. That's a physical term. And then he follows it with a spiritual statement. Give me life in your ways. Whoever said, don't mix metaphors, never read the Psalms. So he uses a physical and then he follows it with spiritual. But that's completely on purpose. He does this on purpose. Because first, our eyes have to be turned away from the thing that is worthless. As long as our eyes are focused on lesser things, we will never truly be able to focus on what is real. We're just going to continue to stare at that worthless thing, and it's going to command our attention. And then our hearts cannot focus on the truth. This is what happens so many times when people say, I know that I need to give my life to Jesus, and and I believe in the truth of the gospel, but then after that, they continue to live the same old ways. 
It's like they've been convinced by the truth of the word, but their eyes are still on the worthless thing. They haven't turned their eyes away from those things yet. An alcoholic will continue to be one if he spends every night in a bar. A porn addict will remain so unless they put safeguards in place to prevent them from going to the same places. It doesn't matter what concepts you might find true, if your eyes are still looking at worthless things, you will never be free of them. So the psalmist says, turn my eyes from looking at worthless things, and then once his eyes are no longer occupied, he can close them. He can shut out the distractions. It's at that point that he can allow thought to leap the chasm. He can begin to perceive the beauty of the unseen God through the written word. Do not forget what we talked about last week. That the truth of God, the beauty of God is found in the word of God. Not in whatever you imagine God to be. Or whatever you imagine truth to be. You don't just get to close your eyes and imagine what you think you should be and dwell in that beauty. Because in that case, your thoughts are not leaping a chasm at all. Your thoughts are staying one inch behind your eyes with yourself. No, the psalmist says, give me life in your ways. Turn my eyes away from worthless things and give me life in your ways. Look at what he says in the previous verse. He says, incline my heart to your testimonies, not to selfish gain. Incline my heart to your testimonies and not selfish gain. Selfish gain is all about looking at those worthless things and wanting to heap them up for myself. But no, the psalmist understands that none of those things can give him anything of value. He is captured by the beauty of God and his word. That's why he can say what he does in verse 35, the the verse right before that, where he says, Lead me in the path of your commandments, for I delight in it. I'll be honest with you guys. This is something that I need so badly. Something that I struggle with so much. Because I am wired to be a very logical person. Concepts of beauty are not the first place that my mind goes. And so I struggle with this stuff. Faith is so much harder than sight. Because sight, you can see. Faith is unseen. Faith takes faith. And I need that. Before we go on to the next point, I just want to throw something out here. I want to emphasize something that is very important, okay? I do not want you to miss this. I need to emphasize this. I am in no way, shape, or form. I am not advocating a form of faith that requires the denial of logic and reason, I do not want people to walk away thinking that I am asking them to stop asking hard questions or to stop wrestling with doubts. That is not what I am saying. I do not ever and never have and never will advocate any form of belief which is typically described as just close your eyes and believe or blind faith. 
On the contrary, I have always said that faith should be directed by knowledge. It should be directed by facts. It should be directed by verifiable truth. So do not leave here and say, well, Sway City wants us to just close our eyes and shut off our minds. He wants us to check our brains at the door so we can believe in God. False. That is not at all what I'm saying. And it's on video, okay? So I will go back to the film. No, the psalmist does not say to turn our eyes away from all things. That's not what he says. He says, turn my eyes from worthless things. He doesn't tell us to close our eyes to family, to truth, to things that are good and honorable, to things that are worthy. He asks God to turn his eyes from things that have no value whatsoever. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life are worthless. But do you know what else they are? Real shiny. They are covered in a shroud of glitter. They command our attention. They are visually enticing and pleasing and seductive. They demand that we look at them and nothing else. So we block that out so that we can focus our eyes close our eyes and focus on what is real we're not blocking out logic or deduction or reason or wisdom or good sense we are blocking out blocking out worthless garbage that wants to kill us okay final point point number three when we are captured by beauty We are set free to live beautifully. Let's look at one final verse. This is verse 32. In verse 32, the psalmist says, I will run in the way of your commandments when you enlarge my heart. I actually like the reading of the New New International Version, the way that the NIV translates this verse. In the NIV, it reads, I will run in the path of your commands, for you have set my heart free. I will run in the path of your commands, for you have set my heart free. That's a really interesting paradox that is set up here. Typically, whenever we think of freedom, we imagine it being like a limitless openness where we can do absolutely whatever we want where we are our own master with no one and nothing telling us what to do. No one to tell us no or where to go or say we're only dreaming. That's how we think of freedom. But that's not really what freedom is, is it? After all, if if that's how we define freedom, literally no one ever at any point in history has ever been free. You are not ever your own master, truly. You still have to follow the laws of the land. You still have to follow the laws of nature and science. And furthermore, you could never be your own master, even if you could be free of those, because at that point, you'll be a slave to your desires, if nothing else. That's what Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians when he describes people whose God is their stomach. They have a desire, and then they're enslaved to it. We all have to live 
within some sort of a paradigm. Freedom has never been about the absence of rules. Freedom is actually about having the unrestricted ability to do and be what you were designed, what you were created to be and do. This is the idea of a bird in a cage. Is a bird in a cage really free? Well, no, because a bird was designed to fly. When a bird is flying, it is doing what it was created to do, therefore it is free. But that doesn't mean that it can just do whatever it pleases. It can't build its nest next to a cat. I mean, it could, but it would die very, very quickly. And so the bird, if it wants to remain living in freedom, still has to follow the laws of nature. Therefore, it is free as long as it exists within a definite framework, as long as it stays in its lane. And the same is true for us. Freedom doesn't come from the absence of rules, the absence of law. Freedom comes from fulfilling our true purpose as God intended for us to fulfill. There's a, a song that I used to listen to when I was in high school um, by this guy named Aaron Benward. And, and the name of this song was, was Captured. And he sings in the chorus, I see heaven, you have opened my eyes. I feel forever when your heart is close to mine. The moment you set me free was the moment you captured me. The moment you set me free was the moment you captured me. In this song, Benward understands that freedom is not coming from being without a master, but rather coming from being with a perfectly good one. That is what the psalmist is describing, that we are free to run within the framework for which we were designed. He says, you have set my heart free, not in spite of commands that I must follow, but rather because of commands that I must follow. He understands that that God created us to reflect him and his beauty. Therefore, when we are doing that, just like when the bird is flying, we're doing exactly what we're created to do, and, and we're free. Now, something that's incredible about the beauty of God and the purpose for which we're made is that God's beauty is not just something that we get to behold. It's something that we get to reflect God invites us into a life in which we get to enjoy that beauty, but it's not just one way. As we bask in that beauty vertically, we reflect that beauty horizontally. Consider for a moment what is meant by the term, a beautiful life. Have you ever described someone in that way? That person lived a beautiful life. Typically, that phrase is used at funerals or to describe someone who has passed away. If they lived a certain way, we say, man, that person really lived a beautiful life. But would we describe someone in that way if they lived a life that was characterized by selfishness, by being entirely self-serving, by being proud, and only serving their own interests? Probably not. We would probably describe that person as uh, they were kind of a jerk. Rest in peace. If you're very vindictive, you might say, rest in pieces. We wouldn't say that they have a beautiful life. So, by way of analogy, think of the movie The Notebook. Stifle your groans for a moment and consider 
an analogy from a movie that many of you, myself included, probably hate. Okay? The main character in this movie is a guy named Noah. And he spends the entire duration of the movie sitting in a nursing home. Spoiler alert if you haven't seen it. Okay? He spends the entire movie sitting in a nursing home reading to his wife, who has uh, highly advanced Alzheimer's disease, reading to his wife from a notebook that is autobiographical and is the story of their love. So every day he goes to the nursing home and he reads their love story from the notebook. And there are times when it jogs her memory. And for just a few moments of clarity, she remembers. And in those few moments, he's got his wife back. But then those few moments quickly fade, the disease pulls her back, and she no longer even knows who he is. He repeats this process over and over and over again in pursuit of those fleeting moments. Uh, At the end of the movie, again, spoiler alert, in this rare moment of cogency, he's read to her and, and there she is. She's there. And the two of them are laying in bed together, tears in their eyes, and she knows that there's only a short time that they have together before the disease takes her back. And so she tells him that she wishes they could end their story right there, together, not separated again. And and Noah agrees that there's no better way to end their story. And so the two share one final kiss, tears fill their eyes, they close their eyes, they drift to sleep, never to be woken again. They die in each other's arms, completely together and in love. Now, we watch a movie like that, and we might say, Noah lived a beautiful life. A life of commitment, an unwavering hope, a life of love. Beautiful life. Contrast that now with Hugh Hefner, another guy who died in old age recently. Not in the arms of his wife, but in a bed by himself with the eyes of the world watching Now, Hugh Hefner certainly lived in a way that the world would describe as being free. He had everything that the world might offer. He had wealth, he had fame, he had power, he had influence, and scores of beautiful women, all of whom he was unfaithful to, including the three women who were nuts enough to marry him. Would we describe someone like Hugh Hefner as having led a beautiful life? No. How do we describe Hugh Hefner? We describe him as a sleazy old pervert. That's <laughs> what he was. He spent his entire life preying on young women and profiting from taking advantage of them. We might say he lived it up. <laughs> he had everything that the world could say would make you happy, but his life was certainly not beautiful. So comparing those stories, what conclusion are we led to? We're led to the conclusion that a life of beauty does not come from the absence of a moral paradigm that guides the decisions that we make. A beautiful life, a a life of true freedom, is the result of running in the path of the commands that we were created to follow. A, A beautiful life is the result of faithfulness. It's the result of self-sacrifice. It's the result of of serving. But it's also the result of knowing that we have a good shepherd who leads us to green pastures and still waters. When David says in Psalm 23, The Lord is my shepherd, 
I shall not want. He can say that because he knows that the good shepherd is meeting every need and desire that David has. There is no lack, no lack in following the good shepherd. It is not a life of boredom. It is not a life of being shackled to a ball, of cha- a ball and chain of rules that we must follow or else we'll be destroyed. David, in Psalm 23, is not looking longingly at sheep who get to wander off by themselves. David is celebrating that he is a part of a flock that's led by a good shepherd who anoints his head with oil and sets a table for him in the presence of his enemies. David understands something that we need to understand. Do you know what happens to the sheep that wander off by themselves? They get killed. They get eaten. They become meals. They are picked off by wolves. Because there's no shepherd to protect them. Or they starve because there's no shepherd to find the green pasture. Or they die of thirst because there's no shepherd to lead them to still water that is full of life-giving joy and pleasure and satisfaction. That satisfaction that does not disappoint is found in the path of the commands of the Good Shepherd. And so it is only in that framework, in that beauty, that we can ever be free. Allow me to finish, if you don't mind, um, with something that I wrote uh, a little while back as I was reflecting on all of this and, uh, and reflecting on how I need this truth so badly. Look out there, I've always said, at the wild horses all running free. They've got it better than I'll ever have. They'll always have more than me. They can go wherever and do whatever and wander however they want. Their grass is greener, their muscle is leaner, and they always look so nonchalant. Meanwhile, I'm stuck unable to join them, and to me it doesn't make sense why the Father chose to hold me back by keeping me locked in this fence. Sure, this pen I'm held in isn't bad. It could be a lot worse, but it isn't. At the same time, it could be much better, and, out, and compared to out there, it's a prison. I try to make the most of it. I smile to hide that I'm bitter, But always murmuring under the surface is discontentment that stabs like a splinter. Why won't he let me have what they have? Why won't he bless me with freedom? Why can't I do the things that they do? Why does he always tell me I need him? Unhappy, I lay down to sleep, not even trying to cover my scowling. But as I look out wistfully beyond the fence in the darkness... I begin to hear howling. A bloodthirsty predator lurks in the shadows. And he's prowling for food to devour. His victims have nothing to keep him away. And they're defenseless against his great power. One by one, he picks them all off. Fangs bared, he kills without warning. His hunger for flesh is never filled. It's only stopped by the light of the morning. 
it's then I realize for the very first time I've been wrong in all of my doubt. This fence wasn't made to keep me in, but rather to keep the enemy out. In the light of day when the horses are running, all I've seen is their perceived freedom. But they don't even realize when the sun goes down, there's a lion who's waiting to eat them. The reality of my so-called entrapment all of a sudden becomes clear to me. Running wild will run you into a lion, but on the inside of the fence, you are free. I can run without fear and sleep in safety. I'm given food and shelter each day. I don't ever have to worry about becoming a meal to a predator hunting for prey. The grass is as green as proper perspective, as alive as attitude will allow. I thank God for his grace and his patience as he's led me to run in it now. It is only in the framework of the commands of God and the beauty of God that we can be set free from the power and the allure of sin. Let us pour ourselves into the presence of true beauty. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for the beauty that offers to capture us and set us free. God, I pray that if there's anyone here or anyone listening who has never been captured by the beauty of your word, by your beauty reflected, God, I pray that tonight would be the night that they come to a place of realization. That tonight would be the night that you turn their eyes from looking at worthless things and you give them life according to your word. God, I pray that you would set us free to run in the path of your commands. Capture us with true beauty, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If you would stand, uh, we will close with a final song. How great indeed is our God, and I invite us all to continue to pour ourselves into that beauty. Um, If you are one who says, I have never experienced this kind of beauty in my life. I, I don't know what it's like to be captured by this beauty, but I want to. To give your life to Christ, please come and talk to me afterward. Um, Let no day pass before that happens. I pray also that we as a church would walk out of here and reflect the beauty of God in the way that we live our lives. His beauty should be shining from us every single day like the light of the sun shines off of the moon. Let that be our defining trait. Join me in prayer. God, thank you so much for this opportunity to see your beauty in your word. And God, I pray that we would reflect it. I pray that our lives would be defined by it. I pray that our souls would be filled with it. You truly are a great and beautiful God. God, I pray that your word has encouraged us and equipped us to go out and live the gospel every single day. God, I pray that we would not just celebrate your beauty here inside these four walls, but we'd celebrate and live out your beauty every single moment in the classroom, at home, 
with our friends at work. Let it ooze out of us because we are so captured by it. Lord Jesus, I pray that you would help us to remember that the mission starts after church. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. You are dismissed.
Thanks for coming back, Aquila. Oh.